0: Have you listened to any of the um, podcast Goodnight Stories for Old Girls? Not yet. It's so good. It is so intensely produced, but it's like really, really good. It's more like a... Is it more like an audiobook than really a podcast? I assume so. I assume they're just reading the stories out of the book. Mm-hmm. But if that's the case, uh, I apologize, because those stories seem a little not age-appropriate. Uh, they're not. The ones that I've read
1: aren't bad.
0: The some of the goddess ones not age appropriate <laughs> at all I had to gloss over rape a lot <laughs> but uh, what was the first one I listened to was the Frida Carlos story and it was interesting and it reminded me of the bits and pieces of the movie that I remembered watching but like not exactly age appropriate for small children some of the themes that get covered so I was like I don't know how I feel about that the Billie Jean King one was awesome though highly recommend I mean, it got to the point where I was like, I am so full of feminist power that I could push my car to the office at this point. (laughs) (laughs) Hello, everyone, and welcome to the newest episode of Rabbit Hole's podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Elise. And I'm your other host, Andy. And this is our next episode featuring powerful women who we admire in pop culture. Yes. Yes. So last week we talked music. Yep. And I played along because I listened to the playlist that you prepared. I did my homework. So I knew a little bit of what you're talking about. Yep. And then I talked TV. And so we have a couple more large genres of pop culture things to get through and I knew you wanted to continue with your look at positivity so I took off my angry feminist hat once more and decided to continue on and uh, join you in that theme and so I have another pro-women's story as well Woohoo! I have to tell you though once we get through the series I'm gonna go real dark real creepy real bad so just a heads up
1: okay <laughs> that will also be when i'm allowed to talk about sex so yeah <laughs> <laughs> although i laugh i was thinking about this today and i'm like okay so you have
0: banned me until spring which uh-huh. is in a couple of weeks but i don't know we're canadians and at this point it seems like we're gonna talk june before we talk spring that is true <laughs> um but we got the concept to do this while we both watched
1: a documentary on sex Sex dolls dolls. and the men who love them this is
0: how was this not going to revolve a lot of sex conversations? because i didn't think it through (laughs) i guess that's my problem (laughs) i'm just like
1: this was even founded on a sex related topic
0: wasted on my own petard with that one Well, I still have a couple of months to enjoy my prudishness, or weeks at least, so uh, let's dive into this week's stories. I'm going to pick up where I left off last week with women in television, and this week talk badass women in movies. Woohoo! Yeah. So, again, like I did last week, I want to look at kind of the history of movies to ground our understanding of women's roles in them. And the first movie, as in a moving image recorded by a camera, was demonstrated in 1891 by the Edison Company via their prototype kinetoscope. Uh, If you are a fan of BuzzFeed's Unsolved or Mysteries, like there's two series, one is Supernatural and one is True Crime, that's it. Uh, I think it was the True Crime one, they looked at the whole question of what happened to the guy who originally invented the television, because he just kind of disappears at some point. And we all know Edison was a bit of a creep when it came to his… <laughs> Stealing out the people's ideas, you mean? Yeah, that's how I would put it, too. Uh, so there's some question as to where this guy actually went, because he just disappeared off a train trip at one point. So I highly recommend going and watching that episode. Oh, I will. Yeah, it's really good. So um, I will leave it there in terms of that story. Uh, and kind of come back to these movies. So the early films were short, and they were often just images with small stories attached. In the 1910s, the film industry was born in both America and Europe, but the First World War limited the growth of the European version, and that's why the American version exploded and became the dominant one. It was at this time that they became closer to what we would consider a movie today, and that they were story-driven, so starting around the First World War. And then color and sound were added in the 1930s, and from there it was off to the races and became closer and closer to the big blockbusters that we know today. Do you know where the term movie comes from? No. So originally, like I said, they were just images projected on a screen with some small story and music attached, right? And then the big jump forward was adding uh, voices. They went from silent films to spoken word films.
1: Talkies! They became
0: talkies. But, like, the... The leap from pictures to moving pictures, they were movies, yeah. they were moving, uh, movies, and then talkies came out later, but talkies didn't stick around because that became the norm, but movies was still part of the nomenclature mm-hmm. that existed today. Cool. Ooh, the more you know, star, swish, all that jazz. <laughs> so let's talk Sorry. about some of yes. I'm just impressed you know that at all, I can't remember it at all. <laughs> Let's talk about some of the early pioneers for women in the film industry. Uh, So the first one to touch on is Alice Guy Blanchet, who was born in Paris in 1873, so about 20 years before the Edison Company displayed their first movie maker, and she went from being a secretary to running her own film studio in New Jersey in the late 1800s, and I'm out It's Jersey, but it still counts, so... (laughs) She's also credited with being the first female director to make a narrative fiction film, which was The Cabbage Fairy in 1896. And it was actually a French film, so it was Le Fée de Choux, like, it's the actual name, but I anglified it and called it The Cabbage Fairy. <laughs> uh, she was a pack leader in the technology related to sound syncing, color tinting, and special effects, and was also not shy about bringing together an interracial cast. So it's easy to see all of these as groundbreaking, but at the time, anything would have been groundbreaking because yeah. the entire industry was new. Yeah. But still, the whole interracial cast thing, like yeah, that's that's like cutting above, <laughs> like yeah. just being the first on the scene type of thing. She also used a lot of techniques that have been credited to others, other male filmmakers over time, but uh, she did them first. Again, just by being one of the first to do that, to be in the field. And they're still very common today. Uh, She was the first to do split screens, double exposures, and the close-up. Yes. (laughs) Uh, The next one on my list is a woman called Lillian Gish, who was born in 1893 and was known as the first lady of the cinema because she was one of the biggest stars of the silent film era. Uh, For example, she was in Birth of a Nation, Broken Blossoms, and La Boheme. And she worked in Hollywood for over 70 years, becoming one of the first female directors and was a staunch advocate for the preservation of film. So those big vaults that the Academy now maintains of, like, all the old film reels. Part of that is thanks to her early efforts. Also, can we talk about the fact that a woman had a career in Hollywood for 70 years? Like, fuck, that's impressive now if you get casted past, like, 50. (laughs) I, I think one day I'm going to have to do this. This woman who
1: has... She's an actress, but her thing is she has been in so many movies. She's an extra, and she's a professional extra. Okay. And they talk about her on Unspooled at one point, because they they had only done, like, maybe ten movies at that point, but she had been an extra. <laughs> in all of them. In, like, five of them or something. <laughs> like So it talks about, like, she is this, like... Extra, but she is like the most extra extra. Right. But she's been working for decades. Good for her. <laughs> so I think I'm gonna have to figure it, 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 go back and find out who she is and maybe do a, a rap-hole on
0: her because she sounds hella interesting. Yeah, for sure. So back to my list of early women in the field. So in the early days of film, the delicate work of editing was considered to be women's work because it was seen as being similar to sewing, and we have fine, delicate hands. Uh, Apparently, this myth was created before they saw me try to type (laughs) on my phone, where it's just, like, fat thumbs mashing away at stuff. (laughs) Uh, But women doing this work weren't being taken seriously or seen as important, even though it was – well, because it was women's work, even though it was crucial to the process. And that was the fact until Margaret Booth came along in 1915, when she went to work for D.W. Griffith, who is considered, like, the father of modern film – I consider him a flaming racist for Birth of a Nation, but that's another story for another time. So she was working for Griffith as something called a patcher, which is putting together those pieces of the film. She worked her way up to being a cutter, which is the person to make the original cuts in the physical film. And then she eventually had worked with him for so long and was so good at her job that she was given complete control of his print production process. So everything from sourcing the film, to getting it into the camera, to getting it out of the camera, to getting it checked, to the editing, everything fell to her. It was for her that the official title Film Editor was created, and it stuck ever since. Before that, there were just splitters or patchers, and then she came along and got this fancy title. She was nominated for an Oscar for her work on the film Mutiny on the Bounty, which was her only nomination, and which was a fucking crime when you consider how much work she did in the industry but she did get an honorary oscar from the academy in 1978 for her total body of work cool honorary oscars are nice but i think everyone wants the actual oscar for the work that they did yeah but mutiny on the bounty is a bomb ass movie old school if you're looking for like an old sunday afternoon movie to watch that's a good one for that look all these women so far and the majority to come have been white even today, we know that Hollywood is a boys club, but it also happens to be a white boys club. So I have to mention Marian Wong, who was a San Francisco-born Chinese-American, who in 1916, when she was 21, founded her own production company to create her one and only silent film, which was called The Curse of the Kong Guan, when Far East mingles with the West. The goal of the work was to show what Chinese culture was to an American audience in order to dispel a lot of stereotypes. were common at the time especially in san francisco it was a short film but it featured an all chinese cast and crew and while the media was fascinated with her as a person for doing this and she was also a very flamboyant person so she got a lot of press she couldn't get anyone to act as a distribution company for the film and she couldn't get it played herself a lot of the film a lot of the theater owners didn't think it would attract an audience so it wasn't a financially viable reason so they wouldn't play it While historians knew that the film had existed, it was thought lost until 2005, when two of its reels were found in the basement of the Chinese American Historical Society in San Francisco. The Academy Film Archives have since restored those reels, and the film is listed on the National Film Registry for its history of representation in American cinema, and I believe you can find clips of it online as well. Cool. So, that is an awesome little story, and way to go, Marion, for doing that for us. (laughs) Uh, We also have to talk about Dorothy Arzner. She started as a typist at Paramount Pictures in 1919, but by 1927, she had directed her first of 20 films for the studio, and that was a film called Fashions for Women. She was one of the first female directors, the first woman to join the Directors Guild of America. She invented the boom mic, which, favorite game of mine when watching bad movies is try to spot the idiot sound person who drops the boom mic into the shot. Um, And she invented it so as to not just distract one of her actresses, whom the article I was reading described as uh, nervous and flighty. So I guess she would be afraid of a cock-like thing coming into her face. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe she was just dumb and was like, oh, butterfly. That too. Could be that. So what Dorothy did was she hung a mic off of a fishing pole above the woman's head and dropped it low enough to get her to pick her up without distracting This poor, dumb, I'm assuming blonde. And I say that as blonde people, so calm the fuck down. (laughs) So she invented this ubiquitous tool of the movie industry now. Arzner was also a mentor to Francis Ford Coppola. Her films were often very feminist in nature, and they were by women and for women. And she was the first director to have her heroine break through the fourth wall and turn to the camera and address the audience. So, interesting groundbreaking director was dorothy Arsner. when you think of indian actresses these days you can't help but think about bollywood but one of the biggest female stars from the indian movie industry actually started out as a fi- silent film actress from the 1910s 1920s and that was fatima Begum. while well, she started off as an actress she went on to found her own production company uh, was the first female director in india and was the mother of two daughters who also went into acting And the first movie she directed, which I can read in my head, but not out loud. So I thought I would be okay when I wrote these notes. Bulbul E. Paristan starred those daughters. And what makes it so unique is that it pioneered the big budget fantasy epic genre. So it was set in like a fairyland and she had big set pieces and large casts. And it had a very epic feel to it. So fuck you, Michael Bay. An Indian woman got there first. Well, I guess not Michael Bay. Who am i thinking of i don't know what michael bay just blows shit up and... true uh peter jackson peter jackson didn't get there first it was an indian woman i was gonna say like like uh michael bay does big epics not fantasy genre but he's transformers it looked like an epic from the commercial i saw because i wasn't gonna spend
1: money to see it oh god no uh, but i was thinking None of them got there first. Like, I was more thinking, like, also like uh, Wizard of Oz. Oh, yeah. Good point. Like,
0: yes. That big fantasy epic. Very colorful at a time when well, that was a bit of a shock to the senses. Yeah. Good point. Yeah. After Fatma from the 1910s, 1920s, the next on my list um, is a woman named Frances Marin, uh, who in 1930 became the first woman to win an Oscar for Best Screenplay for her film, The Big House. And she followed that up in 1932 with another Oscar for Best Story for The Champ. She was the highest paid screenwriter, regardless of gender, throughout most of the 1920s and 30s. So think of that during the market crash and the Depression. A woman was making was the top earning screenwriter at the time. You can get it, girl. And all told, she's credited with writing more than 300 scripts. Jesus. I'm assuming they're not porn because that's a career and not a week. But like 300 yeah. scripts is a lot. In the 1950s, young women of color had Dorothy Dandridge to look up to. She was a bit player for the start of her career and was in a lot of movies before landing her big break in Carmen Jones. She was so good that she was the first African-American woman to be nominated for the Best Actress Oscar. As we all know, Oscar's so white. There's a large length of time between that and the next one that came along. So, Remember Margaret Booth, who got the title film editor and was the first one? One of the women who picked up her mantle after her was Verna Fields, and she was the editor on Jaws. She and Spielberg had a very different approach to having Bruce on camera, and Bruce is the name of the big mechanical shark. So Spielberg was so in love with this thing that he wanted the camera on it as much as possible, as long as possible, because he just loved Bruce and Bruce was the shit. Verna, on the other hand, had a very different approach. So because she was the editor... As soon as she got onto the cutting room, she found that cutting away early would ratchet up the terror in the film and keep the audiences positive that Bruce was real and the way Spielberg was so focused on it. At a certain point, you go, oh, I see the wires like this is a fake shark. Like, yeah. let's get rid of that. So the whole feel and terror of Jaws is really down to Verna's editing style of not following what Spielberg wanted and of cutting away sooner in order to ratchet up the terror and the feel of the film. So all you Jaws fans out there have Verna to thank for staying out of the water. Uzan Palsy was the first Black female director to have one of her films produced by one of the major Hollywood studios, which is MGM. In addition, she is the only woman to have directed Marlon Brando, which she did in 1989, and was the first Black person to direct an actor to an Oscar nomination. So in the 80s, she did all these firsts. Now, some names that'll sound more familiar, even if you're not a massive movie buff. Uh, first one is Penny Marshall. She was the first female director to have a film gross more than $100,000 at the domestic box office. And can you guess what movie that was for? give Their Own. Big. Oh, okay. Yeah. 1988. $100,000 was a, a big deal. Uh, what did The Last Avengers movie break? Oh, f- uh, like a billion. billion?
1: <laughs> but you also got to look at the...
0: T- the inflation thing like, yes. there's a calculator yes that... but yeah still that's even with inflation from 88 to 2019 I think we're talking a larger industry than it ever was before yes I think still though
1: like um, Gone with the Wind is still a pr- like one of the highest grossing movies of all time when you wait oh, yeah. for inflation still mm-hmm. because you think about, especially when you think about how many um, when a couple of factors go into it I think is when you look at how many theaters it opened in
0: Yes. Like Marvel opened in what 100,000 theaters probably. Yeah. Like multiple screens on multiple yeah. theaters. Yeah. True. Very true. So. And my last one to touch on in this kind of lightning round is Sherry Lansing. She has a lot of firsts to her name. She was the first female head of a Hollywood studio, which was 20th Century Fox. The first CEO, female CEO of Paramount Pictures and the first female movie studio head to get a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. She's still active. so. But I want to talk about one of my favorite women currently working in the movie industry, and that's Catherine Bigelow. Do you know much about her? Mm, not overly. Okay. So Bigelow was originally from California and moved to New York in the 1970s to study art at the Whitney Museum of Art. She recognized that the painting she was doing there had a very limited reach so she switched her focus to film and in the late 70s she made her first short film called The Setup which explored topics of violence that carried through the rest of her career. She got a master's degree in film theory and criticism from Columbia University in 1979 and it was after that she created her first full-length feature called The Loveless starring William Defoe in 1981. Her early films include such cult hits as Blue Steel starring Jamie Lee Curtis, and Point Break, which, if you are a fan of Hot Fuzz, you know about Point Break, and that's really the only way I know about Point Break. Oh, I've watched Point Break a number of times. Oh, yeah? Sadly, yes. I think I, quote-unquote, watched it at a drive through with my parents for a double feature of uh, Independence Day and Point Break, and Independence Day played first, and I was like eight or nine, so I fell asleep. And just woke up at some really scary, violent moments of Point Break. And I was just like, not for me. <laughs>
1: yeah, I, I remember Point Break. I've seen Point Break a, a number okay. of
0: times, probably.
1: Just like TV, though, on TV. I don't think uh, I've okay. ever actually
0: like... paid to yeah. have the pleasure. Yeah. Neither of those films, Blue Steel or Point Break, were very well received by the critics. Um, but they both had dynamic action sequences and intense violence in them. Again, common throughout her career. During the 90s she worked on several television shows as either a writer or producer, but she returned to movies in 2000s and this is where I kind of catch up with her career. So her first critical and audience hit was 2009's The Hurt Locker, which follows the story of an American bomb tech in Iraq during the war. In this vehicle her visual style and willingness to embrace violence were very well placed, so much so that the film won the BAFTAs that year for best director and best film, and Bigelow won the Oscar for best director. Beating out her ex-husband James Cameron for the honor, and she was the first woman to win the Oscar for being a director. When Barbara Streisand announced that she was the winner, which fucking weird, why would Barbara Streisand be announcing a directing award? But whatevs. So when Barbara Streisand announced she was the winner, she opened the envelope and before saying her name, muttered, "It's about time." <laughs> Probably that's why. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, In the press scrum afterwards, Bigelow said, in quote, I hope I'm the first of many, but I'm ever grateful if I can inspire some young, intrepid, tenacious male or female filmmakers and have them feel that the impossible is possible and never give up on your dream. She also agreed with Stryzan that 82 years was an incomprehensibly long time for the Academy to go without recognizing a woman as best director. So she followed up The Hurt Locker with Zero Dark Thirty in 2012. Uh, And again, it's set around American involvement in the Middle East with undercurrents of violence throughout. Uh, Fun fact, some guy thought that was a good movie to take me on for a first date. Which one? Zero Dark Thirty? Yeah. I was like, which one? You mean the guy or the movie? Zero Dark (laughs) Thirty. Sorry. Which movie? (laughs) Yeah. Zero Dark Thirty. It's real romantic. What can I say? those opening scenes of waterboarding were setting the mood. Wow. <laughs> Ladies, this is why I'm perma single.
1: <laughs> Good Lord. That's right up there with taking the first date to a church. So you could sing a song that you wrote for them. Yeses. That was not
0: me, by the way. No, I think I know who that was. So for Bigelow, zero dark 30, she was nominated for a golden globe for the project. Now, In reality, her movies just really aren't my cup of tea. I'm not big on the the violence. I appreciate the Hurt Locker and the Zero Dark Thirty. I really liked Hurt Locker. I couldn't get into Zero Dark Thirty. Yeah, because it's really political, and it's got some pacing issues, I think, at certain points. But yeah, to me still, the stories are what keeps me watching films like that, because the violence isn't my thing. And I never really paid attention to Bigelow and her story until that Oscar win uh, for the... Hurt Locker, and what caught my attention was the drama that surrounded that win. So that year, Bigelow was up against her ex-husband, James Cameron, and his flick, Avatar. Yeah. Bigelow and Cameron were married in 1989, but they only lasted two years because while filming Terminator 2, Cameron started an affair with the film's female lead, Linda Hamilton, and Bigelow dumped his ass. Very quickly. And very finally. In the divorce settlement, Bigelow got the marital home, the cost of her legal fees and a small, to them, cash settlement of less than half a million dollars. She also gave away all rights to any profit off Terminator 2. So, in essence, she got nothing in the divorce. The scrum in Hollywood at the time was that she lost that divorce because she got so little. And when you compare that to the fact that when Cameron and Linda Hamilton divorced, because they married after their affair, she walked away with a $30 million settlement at the time. So, comparatively... Bigelow got nothing, and I honest God thinks she just wanted to be out and away from him and didn't feel the need to be supported by any man, so couldn't give a fuck about what kind of money she was going to get off of it, which is why I love her so much. <laughs> it was a real fuck you to him, and I love that. He so also the- wasn't worth quite
1: as much money as when his second divorce happened.
0: Uh, Terminator 2,
1: yeah, it was pre-Titanic, but it was yeah. post-The Abyss. Yes, but still pre-Titanic. Like, Titanic is where he... Made that leap. Well, because before that, he was known as being able to do Terminator and The Abyss, like these action. Mm-hmm. When he did t- Titanic at this grand scale, a, it went over my mud- like, way over budget. Yeah. But this sort of romantic, grand, epic. Oh, I huge- paid to see that in film in theaters at least four times. I remember exactly. Yeah. But that was not who James Cameron was. Right. James Cameron up until that point was Michael Bay, light. Like, <laughs> yes. like, not light, he was actually a much better filmmaker, Yeah, but that sort of idea. And then he just went in with the Titanic, and all of a sudden it's like, well, A, that made him a Titanic load of money. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> An iceberg amount of money, if you yeah. will. <laughs> uh, but before, like, so the money that she got, um, Hamilton got...
0: He was, was, was post Titanic s- money So much more at that yes. point. But Terminator 2 did very well yeah. in terms of box office. And she in the fact that she gave up rights to profit makes me think that she was just really yeah, wanted out of that too, but she was involved as more than just the wife of the person who was doing it. So she was probably executive producing or something yeah. like that. So she could have walked away with a nice chunk of change to just get the house and the legal fees and a small cash payout. That's a real fuck you, keep your money, I'd rather just never see your face again move, which I appreciate. <laughs> so, regardless of the hows and whys, they did maintain an amicable relationship after the divorce, although Hollywood agreed that she quote unquote lost that divorce. That said, she then won the Oscar. And people that know Cameron know that it. Is petty ass. He's petty and it rankled him to no end. He was asked before the uh, ceremony if he thought she should win and how he would feel if she won. And he said, well, it's a great movie, but I think Avatar should win to honor all the people who worked and developed so many new technologies around it. But at the end of the day, it's about storytelling and blue cats versus the story that Bigelow tells through the Hurt Locker. It's apples and oranges, right? Avatar was, I I personally didn't even like Avatar that much, but I didn't, didn't even bother seeing it. I read, it was kind of cool, but yeah. I heard the premise, and I was like, "This feels like it's more about the look than the the oh, story yeah. behind it." And if I want that, I'll watch Shrek. Like,
1: <laughs> unlike the unlike Titanic, which was a story, and it was all the little stories that made Titanic great.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It's not just the Rose and Jack. It was the shot of the mom comforting her kids as as the water came in the room which was like i was crying like when i the first time i saw that in theaters i was like fall on like (laughs) ugly kim kardashian it had nothing to do with jack dying right it was all those pieces because like that mom was saying um reciting um one of my favorite poems growing up as a kid and the older couple like cuddling each other in the bed Because they were in series, they couldn't get out, and the water's just rising up, and that was... Even now, I'm like, you need a minute? I I almost do. But that aspect
0: of storytelling was totally lost in Avatar, Yeah, I felt. You can't do that with blue cats. Like, It's the human story that you're responding to in the Titanic off-one-shot scenes type of thing, and blue cats swinging from their tails off of trees, like... (laughs) sorry, that's not going to pull at your heartstrings in the same way. So, yeah. So while he did seem okay with her win, there's a really famous photo of him pretending to choke her out afterwards that uh, went viral. And to me, there's always a little bit of truth in every joke. So to me, that frustration might have manifested itself as, oh, come here, I want to strangle you for winning above me. But really at the very kernel of that is really like, you fucking bitch. Like you took away my little gold man.
1: I mean, maybe part of her settlement originally was they were, she was a small fish in a small pond and she was leaving a big fish, so yeah, it it had to stay amicable for her to
0: And walking away without taking a lot of money, like some men want to leave you with nothing if you're going to leave them, and she did leave him, so that could have just been another tactic of keep him happy and make him think I'm not getting anything out of it and he's hurting me for it and come and swing and later and Just teach them that lesson. So, so far I've talked about the women behind the camera, but I want to wrap up and talk about some of the female characters on the big screen that have inspired other women and that are particularly poignant to me. It's like we talked about last week. You leave a lot on the table when you do lists like this. Mm -hmm. So, these are just ones that hit home with me. And when I looked at a bunch of lists online, the majority of cited characters of strong, powerful women come from recent, and by that I mean like the last 20 to 30 years worth of movies. And they're mostly white women, which I think is indicative indicative of a lack of representation in Hollywood and a lack of critical attention when those aren't the leading ladies. Before I I start this, I want to say that A, I'm sure the ghosts of Katharine Hepburn and Marlena Dietrich, just to name a few, are pissed off at these lists because they rarely appear on them. And B, representation matters, as does intersectionality. So Hollywood, please do better. Just throwing that out there. You mentioned it. But this movie started Little Feminist Elise down the path of pro-womanness, and that is The League of Their Motherfucking Own, (laughs) which came out in 1992. So if you are unfamiliar with the film, and if you are, I feel sorry for you, but also I'm jealous that you get to go experience it for the first time because it holds up like there's no creative baseball. I'll get there. So during the war, the the plot of the film is during the war, all able-bodied men were expected to go overseas and fight. This left a dearth of professional athletes and to provide entertainment for those left at home, an all-female baseball league was formed. So the flick was f- seminal to my youth, and why not? It was rated PG, even the racier stuff wasn't that bad. Tom Hanks peeing into a beer can is probably as bad as it got, and my dad just laughed whole through that scene, so like there was no Elise go away when dad's having that much fun. Uh and it also has an amazing message, so of course my parents were gonna be down to let me watch it. And the cast. Let's talk about the cast for a minute. So, of course, Tom Hanks was top builds. Male. One of the bigger of two stars in the film. But the rest of the main characters were women played by actors such as Gina Davis, Lori Petty, Madonna, which was an odd pull, but that was the suddenly seeking Susan Evita age. So, yes. And you have just mentioned the two movies that she's good in. (laughs) She was good in A League of Their Own. Because she didn't have a lot to
1: do in it. That's what I mean. She was good in Evita. Oh, okay. <laughs> and she was... I, I really thought she was pretty good at Evita, okay. personally. Um, and she was really good in a League of Her Own. I yes. haven't really seen Se- Suddenly Seeking Susan, because I am too young to see Suddenly Seeking Susan. <laughs> but, like, it's just not my age, but... Right.
0: So in addition to Madonna, there was Rosie O'Donnell. Also a great representation I was a little still a little husky as that child, so seeing that on the screen hit home with me and that was great. Megan Kavanaugh, who's a name you probably wouldn't recognize, but as soon as you see your photo, you're like, oh, that's who that is. It was one that was a little bit of a butterface. Like she was quiet and she wasn't the prettiest of the girls and She the one who had a kid. No. No. That was the lesser but known but equally talented Cusack sibling Anne. Anne Cusack. Oh. Yeah. No, uh, Megan Cavanaugh, she's not classically beautiful. Sorry, Miss Kavanaugh, she's not really even beautiful. Uh, she ended up with that kind of mealy-mouthed guy from The Dance. <gasps> oh, yes! There it is. yes! Yes, yes, yes. She was, had a big career in the 90s. And you quoted it, but who can forget that iconic line, there's no crying in baseball, which has seeped into my life in so many ways. Every time I have to do something I don't want to do or I see someone crying over something that's really dumb, I'll be like there's no crying in office work. What are you doing? That type of thing. My dad literally had to stop himself from telling a young woman that when she was crying in his office one day. And he's like, there's no crying in the army. He came home and he was like, it was the hardest thing I ever had to do.
1: (laughs) Sometimes you just need to cry, people. But sometimes... Sometimes you just, you you can't. As the mother of a really whiny child, (laughs) I want to constantly be like why are i always like why are we crying now (laughs) what is wrong Uh,
0: so you were definitely a child of the 90s if you have said there's no crying in blank at any point in your life so after that uh, four years later was the bomb of a movie also still holds up really well the first wife club (gasps) i love that movie they were each shall we say seasoned ladies whose husbands left them for younger models So they combine their talents to get revenge on the men who discarded them for these young ladies, and it really drove home the point that a competent woman doesn't need a man to take care of her. And the characters are just really relatable and very human. I love that movie. uh, Goldie Hawn, Bette Midler, and Diane Keaton are the leads. It's really good. And the guy who plays Balky from Perfect Strangers
1: plays the... uh, The... (laughs) Yes, The interior designer Ziner. and Sarah Jessica Parker Is plays one of, one the, one of new the wives. wives. Yeah. yeah, it's good. And isn't, um, who plays the elder statement, who's the first, second, third, fourth, and fifth wife? The older lady who's like, the society?
0: Yes, another actress who had a big career throughout the 90s, who you would recognize if you saw her, but the name might not be familiar. Maggie Smith. Maggie Smith plays the older. Really? Yeah. Oh, I'm seeing a completely different actress in my head. But I'll buy it. Maggie Smith can be in anything. Gwilla Goldberg, a wealthy
1: New York City social leader who helps the First Wife Club along with her schemes because she was
0: once a first wife, as well as a second, third, and fourth wife. (laughs) (laughs) Maggie Smith is awesome. Next on my list of powerful women who influence me is Erin Brockovich from the 2000 movie of that name. In the film, she's a single mother who helped expose corporate negligence that impacted the health of hundreds of people, causing various forms of cancer and other illness, and it was based on a true story. Julia Roberts portrayed Brockovich as a no-nonsense mother just looking to support her kids who stumbles across what could be called the humanitarian crisis and pours herself into fixing it and getting justice for those impacted. And no surprise that Roberts won an Oscar for her role in the film. Well-deserved. They're boobs, Ed. Yeah, the classic line that still all women will repeat. <laughs> One of these is a little, could be seen as a little odd, and that's Elle Woods from Legally Blonde. But when you think about it, it really, really makes sense. Because she channeled her heartbreak and embarrassment into being a kick-ass lawyer. She proved that as long as you had a good heart, it didn't matter what you looked at like on the outside. And the story is, if you're a good person, you win at the end of the day. So... A lot of people, I think, dismiss the film and the character as pink and bubbly and having a Tinkerbell-sized chihuahua. I've never seen Legally Blonde. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. What? I've never seen Legally Blonde. I don't think... No, I'm sorry. I refuse to accept this reality. <laughs> so what year did it come out? 2001. So I would have been 21 at the time. So? That's not an excuse, Andy. You no, say that like it's an excuse. It's really not. I think it's on Netflix, so I know what we're doing after we're done recording this. All right. <laughs> it's good. Luke Wilson. Can I be it? high while I watch it? Sure. Okay. Can I? Uh, yes. <laughs> I'll sit there texting you, I'm sure. At <laughs> least I know I won't get vagina shots. You never know. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't mine. Like Ali <laughs> reminded me to say, it was not a picture of mine. No. <laughs> Next on my list uh, is Merida from Brave, the 2012 cartoon. Yes. I think if you have children, and you're going to get stuck watching a cartoon on loop, like you do with Frozen or uh, Marina. I've uh, tried! Just tell them the other ones are broken. So it's got to be brave. It's got to be brave. Moana is actually not bad. It's great, but I'm sure if you watch anything 50 times, it makes you want to, like, put your TV yes. through a wall. Yes. Although i got to say, I finally watched the end of Moana this week, and I was almost in tears. Yeah, it's a, it's a, got a good ending. Yeah. Powerful message. Yeah. But Merida from Brave really hit home with me because I was babysitting my cousin's three kids who are all boys. And I was like, shut up and watch it. It's a girl. (laughs) Got real intense because I was really into it. (laughs) So young princess. Sure, go make your own food. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Oven? I don't care. Merida is a young princess of Scotland who doesn't want to live the prescribed life of being the wife to someone, and that's what her gender and station is expected to live. So she uses her skills and bravery to forge her own path, and like I said, should be mandatory viewing on repeat for children, regardless of gender, and adults too, to be honest. It is actually really good. It's a really good movie. Lastly, we have The Ladies of Hidden Figures, uh, the big 2016 hit. At a time when racial tension was rife in the States, women were expected to be nurses, teachers, or housewives. Hidden Figures looks at the lives of several African-American mathematicians employed uh, employed by NASA during the race to the moon. Taraji P. Henson portrayed Katherine Johnson, a woman without whom it's unlikely the first mission to the moon would have happened, as it did. And she had to fight both racial and gender barriers to do it. But when you're just that smart, people have to pay attention. And I watch it that movie on a flight from Vancouver back to Ottawa and I was like don't land let's just keep going I would like to rewatch it it was really good so honorable mention goes to Cher Horowitz from Clueless for similar reasons to Elle Woods really another movie which she once confessed to me you would never seen
1: no no I've seen Clueless, I've seen Clueless.
0: oh Mean Girls you said you had not yeah, seen yeah I haven't seen Mean Girls once we're done with Elle Woods uh, Kat Stratford and 10 Things I Hate About You She didn't feel the need to conform to the expectations of her peers and forged her own path.
1: But got to be with Heath Ledger. In the He's, end, anyway, yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah. Maria von Trapp from The Sound of Music, because Julie Andrews and Nazis being made to look dumb. Yeah. <laughs> I hate The Sound of Music, but yes. Uh, I'm sorry, like, you have no soul. How have we gone this long in our friendship with these revelations coming out now? I know. I well, love musicals, but I keep that deal with stale music. Oh, boy. And lastly, of course, Miss Hermione Granger from the Harry Potter films, who proves that girls can be the smartest person in a room and everyone just has to adjust to that fact. So, And she can land a mean right punch when needed to. Right in that dickface's nose, yes. So that is my tour through women in film, the early ones, the ones behind the camera, and the ones, the characters that inspire us women today. Very good. Yeah, positivity.
1: (laughs) So uh, again, we're doing women. So I'm doing women playwrights. I was going to do
0: authors and playwrights together, but then I just decided to do playwrights. I have a confession to make. This is going to be very much like the whole music thing, because I know you're big on the Tonys and the plays. And so I will listen and I will engage in these conversations with you like, oh my God, really? That's Most of these become movies. Okay, good. Because so you'll you'll stage, recognize most of them. Yes. The stage things, I would just, I'd be lying if I said I knew anything about it. <laughs> uh, so
1: uh, the first playwright, you definitely will know, because it's Agatha Christie. Mm. Uh, of course. So as I said, I'm a huge Agatha Christie fan. When I was sort of that 12 to 14, there wasn't a whole lot of YA options. Yes. Because yeah. that didn't exist. No, that's In a new the- invention. Yeah. Late 80s, early 90s.
0: Well, you had Nancy Drew and the Hardy Boys. What more could you need? Uh, Well, I...
1: (laughs) So, uh, as Elise will know, not great with the grammar, but my reading comprehension has always been off the charts. Mm -hmm. So I stopped reading that pretty early. (laughs) Good Lord, I tried to read, like, The House of Seven Gables in elementary school. Did not work, because that's a very boring book. (laughs) Uh, But, uh, so before the boom of YA, I ended up getting into Agatha Christie at about... I started. Probably reading her at about twelve. Oh, okay, hence why I started reading Anne Rice at like fourteen. But anyway, there <laughs> so just wasn't a whole lot. Uh, so, born in uh, ni- 1890, Agatha, she became and remains the best-selling novelist of all time. Oh, yep. She's only sold less books than the Bible. Huh. because you think about how many
0: the books volumes. she's written, yeah.
1: How many? How many years they've been out? How many years they've been reissued? Uh, she is in every language pretty much um, so yeah there's there's not too many that she has not that has there's nobody that sold more than her hmm. um well again she's her novels what did I say 75 novels oh and then there's collections of short stories and then there's her plays hmm. so most of her plays uh, so she's not just a novelist but she also was a playwright having written 13 plays 5 and 5 radio plays most of her plays were based off of her books or short stories, but she did write a number of original works, such as The mouse Trap* and The Verdict.
0: Oh, uh-huh, The mouse Trap* I've heard of.
1: Yes. The mouse Trap* began its life as a short radio play broadcast on uh, May 30th, 1947, called Three Blind Mice, in honor of Queen Mary, the, con- the consort of King George V. I'm right, right? King George the yep, V? Yeah, the King's Speech yeah. guy. Um, it originated from the real life cause of Dennis O'Neill, who died after he and his brother... No, hold on. Hold on. We're not doing spoilers, are we? No. Okay. No, it's just not spoilers, it's just the whole
0: premise of the... the okay, because I haven't seen it yet, I desperately want to see it, and what I know of it is that everyone says, don't ruin it for you before no, no, you see no, it. No, no, it's not. Okay. So, uh... So it's originated after the
1: real-life cause of Dennis O'Neill, who died after he and his brother Ter- suffered extreme abuse while in the foster care of a farmer and his wife in 1945. Well, this is not as delightful as i had always assumed it was. So that's sort of the, the premise, the underlying story, backstory of why the, the uh, why Mouse Trap takes place. Like, okay. the, the happenings of the Mouse Trap are all... After this. Event. After this. Got so this it. is the event that sort of underlies everybody. So after the radio play, Christie wrote a short story and a full play version of the story. Uh, but Christie asked that the short story not be published as long as it ran as a play in the West End of London. Right. So The Mouse Trap is now the world's longest running play in its, in, its initial run, So which means it's never stopped. Uh, and when I saw the play last April, and I double-checked my photo, it was in the 27,296
0: performance. <laughs> so I will post that at Instagram. Yeah, because they have like a sign up yeah. in front of the theater, right? Yeah. yeah. It has like a ticker. I regret that that's not the play that I saw in the West End when I was in London a few years ago.
1: So yeah, my mom and I went to see it and we went to see Kiki Boots the next night. It was mm-hmm. really good. That was like, I was like, no, we are going, you can pick whatever else you want to see, mom. I want to see Mastrap. Mastrap. Uh Christy was quoted as saying that she thought it would run maybe eight months. <laughs> Uh, when it broke the record for longest play in the West End in September 1957, Christie received a mildly grudging telegram from fellow playwright Noel Coward. <laughs> as much as it pains me, I must congratulate you. Oh, thanks. Thanks, asshole. <laughs> as per her request, the short story st- has still not been published within the United Kingdom, but it has appeared in the United States in the 1950 collection Three Blind Mice and Other Stories. Hmm. The play ends with a twist, but the audience is asked not to reveal, and which I will not because it was a really good play. Right. I was a little worried when you were going through movies that you were going to touch on this person, but it's Anne Claire Booth Luce. That is quite a name. I know. Uh, Anne. (laughs) Actually, we're going to know her her as Luce. L-U-C-E. Luce? Okay, so nickname for Lucy. Yeah. No, that's her actual last name is Luce. Oh, Okay. Uh, She was an American author, politician, U.S. ambassador, and political conservative figure. She was the first American woman appointed to a major ambassadorial role post-abroad. She was the U.S. ambassador to Italy. Hmm. Uh, A versatile author, she is best known for her hit play, The Women, which was also a movie. Yes. And then a really
0: bad remake. Yes. And it's the really bad remake that I remember seeing.
1: Oh, I have to. (laughs) Next time I come over, I'll bring bring over the (laughs) the original movie. Uh, One thing that was unique about all of those three things is that it's an all female cast. Yes, the
0: women. There is no male ever seen or heard. I got halfway through. Yeah, I got halfway through the film and I realized I haven't seen a single guy, even as a background actor. Nope. There's one shot where they're in New York and you see a guy unloading something from a truck, but it's really clear that it was just he the coincidence that he was in the background and it's the only guy the entire time the original one you don't even see that yeah (laughs) which i was really impressed with at the time i was like yes yeah same thing with the uh the stage play it
1: was there's no male uh roles in it her writing extended from drama drama and screen scenarios to fiction journalism and war reporting she was a writer with considerable power on invention and wit Luce published Stuffed Shirts, a promising volume of short stories in 1931. Scriber's magazine compared the work to Evelyn Waugh's vile bodies for its bitter humor. Hmm. She also published many magazine articles. Her real talent, however, was playwright. Although I actually would argue with that quote that I took it from, that her real talent was war reporting. Hmm. Uh, After a failure of her initial stage effort... The marital melodrama Abide With Me, she rapidly followed that up with a satirical comedy, The Women, deploying a cast of no fewer than 40 actresses who discussed men often in scorching language. It became a Broadway smash <laughs> in 1936 and three years later, a successful Hollywood movie. Uh, it's a favorite of mine and I have never seen it on stage, but I do love the, the, the movie. Some aspects of the messaging do not hold up. But the movie and play is still one of the few examples of a totally female cast, hmm. not just a female driven cast. There is all no women. Men. Yeah. Like, it is all men. No male characters or actors are seen on stage or in the movie, except for that one we'll wide the shot yeah. from that awful remake. Please do not watch it, people. <laughs> uh, later in the 1930s, she wrote two more successful but less durable plays, also made into movies. Kiss the Boys Goodbye and Margin for Error. The latter work presented an all-out attack on the Nazis' racist philosophy and its opening night in Princeton, New Jersey on October 14, 1939 was attended by Albert Einstein and Thomas Mann. How could it have not been a smash hit with those
0: themes? I know.
1: (laughs) So much of Luce's famous acid wit can be traced back to the days when, as a wealthy young divorcee of the early 30s, she became a caption writer at Vogue, And then successful associate editor and managing editor of Vanity Fair. She has not only edited the works of such great humorists as P.J. Woodhouse and Corey Ford, but contributed many comic pieces of her own, signed and unsigned. Her humor, which she retained to well into old age, was a pillar of Claire's character. Another branch of her literary career was war journalism, Europe in the Spring was a result of a four-month tour, which was one of her, I don't remember if that was a book or a piece in the Times, was a result of a four-month tour of Britain, Belgium, and the Netherlands, Italy, and France in 1939 to 1940 as a correspondent story for Life magazine. She described the widening grounds of World War II as a world where men have decided to die together because they were unable to find a way to live together. Dang, you know, there's a truth bomb right in your face. Yeah. In 1941, Luce and her husband toured China. Okay, so note, her husband was also the publisher and editor of Life and Time. But because he didn't want to be accused of nepotism, mm-hmm. he didn't always publish her work, but she was a really great reporter regardless. Mm-hmm. But she didn't get quite as much play because he was worried about accusations of nepotism. Yeah. Because again, that she was his wife, but she was a pretty kick-ass reporter. So in 1941, Luce and her husband toured China and reported on the state of the country and its war with Japan. Her profile of General Douglas MacArthur was on the cover of life in 1941, the day after the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor. Hmm. After the United States entered the war, Luce toured a military installation in Africa, India, China, and Burma, compiling a further series of reports for life. She published interviews with General Harold Alexander, the commander of the British troops in the Middle East. Um, you're going to have to, you probably know these names better than me. Uh,
0: Kai Shek. Uh, Nehru. We just call him Nehru. Uh, Stillwell.
1: Commander of the American troops in the China Burma Indian Theater. So her lifelong instinct for being in the right place at the right time and having easy access to key commanders, because again she was born yeah. into socialites, um, made her um, an influential figure on both sides of the Atlantic. She endured bombing raids and other dangers in Europe and the Far East, and she did not hesitate to criticize the unwarlike lifestyle of General Sir Claude
0: Akinleck. <laughs> uh. He's British. Uh. Achenlek? I've never seen that name before. He's the mil-
1: He was the Middle East uh, command. And uh, in language that Ricard barbs of reply, like she just tore this guy down. And we'll tell you why. So in one draft article for life, which she noted that he lived far from Egypt, the Egyptian front in a houseboat and outlined the overall lack of preparedness in Libya was discovered by British customs. It caused such a fuss, they put her under house arrest. Yikes. But, coincidentally or not, he, that general, was fired a few months later by Winston Churchill, who happened to also be a friend of hers. Yeah. So, she, and she actually also said, uh, called the RF pilots, the RFAs, RFAs flying fairies. Oh, shit. <laughs> yep. Yeah.
0: She's making friends everywhere, isn't yeah. she?
1: But she was friends with Churchill, and a few months later, he ended up firing. <laughs> she was only in house arrest because she was going through Trinidad. They put her in house arrest in Trinidad. Uh, because Worst they places found, to be under house arrest. Yeah, uh, they because of this, like, really horrible article that she was writing. <laughs> her varied experiences in all major war theaters qualified her for a seat the following year at the House Military Affairs Committee after she was elected to the United States House of Representatives in 1942. She's a really interesting figure, and I Mm -hmm. really strongly recommend people to go down the rabbit hole of hers, because she... wow. She sounds like she lived a life and a half. She did, and she was... um, Roosevelt took a kind of a, a dislike to her? That's always a sign that you're doing something right. And so he started saying some bad stuff about him, her, right. and then she shot back with, he lied us into war because he was not brave enough to lead us into war.
0: Dang, yo, she's <laughs> dropping these truth bombs everywhere. <laughs>
1: she's really interesting. You should yeah. definitely crawl down that rabbit hole because she's a pretty cool lady. Uh,
0: I think I'm going to kick
1: the door down and go down that rabbit hole. <laughs> yeah. My next uh, playwright is Lisa Kron. And she is an actress and a playwright, and she is best known for writing the lyrics and book to the musical Fun Home, for which she won the Tony Award for Best Original Score and the Tony Award for Best Book of a Musical. And actually, Fun Home was also awarded the Tony Award for Best Musical in 2015 and the 2014 Obie Award for Writing for Musical Theater. She also has two other major works, which were... Fully Her Own Works, which was a two-and-a-half-minute ride, which blends a trip she took with her father, Walter, to Auschwitz, the scene of his parents' extermination by the Nazis, and her family's annual trip to an amusement park in Ohio. Sounds like National Lampoons. But with Auschwitz. Yeah. So (laughs) Crom (laughs) says in the introduction to her play, humor and horror are juxtaposed, and you might not know for a second whether you were at Auschwitz or at the amusement park. The show does not tell you whether to laugh and when to be solemn. The response is up to you. Yikes. The play recounts her father's remarkable experiences. When my father heard that his parents had been sent to Auschwitz, he immediately tried to order a ham sandwich to distance himself from Judaism. Oh, but boy. he couldn't. He said to the waitress, uh, tuna fish. Cron also reflected on looking at a poem on an exhibit during her trip to Auschwitz, I read the words that have undone me, people burn here. And one of the most memorable scenes in the play is when her father tells her about the death of his, of her grandparents at Auschwitz. I don't think I accepted it until a few years ago in Lansing. It was winter and it was so cold and I was shivering. And I realized that this would only happen to them once when they were old and they stood outside lined up in the cold and they were no use to anyone and they were killed.
0: Way to bring down the room, Anne. I know.
1: Jeez. (laughs) Uh, Her other autobiographical work, Well, explores her mother's Anne's experience with social activism and illness. The play uses physical illness as a metaphor for social illnesses, such as racism. Her description of Well is a multi-character theatrical exploration of issues of health and illness, both individually and in the community. So Fun Home is probably her most notable work. Uh, I have not seen it, but I do have the uh, cast recording on my phone and I quite like it. It's her first musical and the first work based on an existing work by another artist. Hmm. It's based on Erin Bechamel's acclaimed graphic novel memoir Fun Home, which serves as the basis for the musical. Crone wrote the book and the lyrics and Tony nominated composer Janine Thorso wrote the score. And it looks at the experiences of cartoonist Bechamel growing up in the small town of Pennsylvania as a not-yet-out lesbian daughter of a closeted gay man. Oh, boy. All of Cron's previous works have been based on her own experiences, but Fun Home was based on uh, Alice's graphic memoir of the same name. Uh, The story concerns Allison's discovery of her own sexuality, her relationship with her gay father, finding out he was gay, the attempts to unlock the mystery surrounding his life and death, and is the first Broadway musical with a lesbian protagonist. Is It's told in a series of non-linear vignettes connected by a narration provided by an adult Allison character, but also as a teen Allison character, a college Allison character, and a child Allison character. Hmm wrote this. Again, I have not seen it on stage, but I do have to cast recording, and I there's a couple of songs that I just absolutely love off of it. My last playwright is Lorraine Hasbury. Hasbury is the first Black female author to have a play performed on Broadway.
0: Wow. Not year?
1: last, first, sorry. Did I say first or last? I can't
0: remember, but I knew where you were going with it. Thanks. What year? Uh, I don't think I wrote this down. Okay.
1: Uh, her best known work is a play A Raisin in the Sun okay so this was in the 30s or 40s
0: oh okay so like not contemporary no
1: no not a contemporary so it highlights the lives of black Americans living under racial segregation in Chicago Hasbury's family had struggled against segregation challenging its restrictive conventions and eventually provoking the Supreme Court case Hasbury versus Lee the title of the play was taken from a poem Harlem by Langston Hughes. What happens to a dream deferred question? Does it dry up like a raisin in the sun? Hmm. At the young age of 29, she won the New York Drama Critics Circle Award, making her the first African-American dramaist and the fifth women and the youngest playwright to ever do so. That's a lot of firsts.
0: Yep. <laughs> Early ones, at least.
1: Before her success on Broadway, she joined the staff of the Black Journal Freedom newspaper, where she worked as a subscription clerk, receptionist typist, editorial assistant and she also wrote news articles and editorials
0: hmm.
1: One of her first reports covered the Journeys for Truth and Justice convened in Washington, D.C. by Mary Church Turler. She traveled to Georgia to cover the case of Willie McGee and was inspired to write the poem Lynch Song about his case Hasbury worked on not only on U.S. civil rights movements, but also global struggles against colonialism and imperialism. She often clarified that these global struggles by explaining them in the terms of female participation. She was particularly interested in the situation in Egypt, where the traditional Islam cradle of civilization, where women had led the most important fight anywhere for the equality of their sex. She died very young of pancreatic cancer. Oof in 1965 at age 34. Oh, that's rough. Yeah, sorry, her plays were in the 50s then. That makes more sense. Her ex-husband, who even after the divorce was still her working partner, ensured her legacy by completing a number of her unfinished manuscripts. Hmm. He made only minor changes to complete the play Les Blancs, which was, uh, as some termed, her best work, and he adapted many of her writings into the play called To Be Young, Gifted, and Black which was the longest-running off-Broadway play of the 68-69 season. Hmm. She has quite the legacy. There are schools, dorms, and awards named after her. She has been inducted into the Chicago Gay and Lesbian Hall of Fame, the Chicago Literary Hall of Fame, and the National Women's Hall of Fame. Raisin in the Sun has been adapted as a film three times, a radio play twice, has been on Broadway three times, which includes its initial run. Um, and not a common thing, but this play has spanned two, let's quote unquote, spinoffs. Hmm. Uh, in 2010, a play, Claiborne Park by Bruce Norris depicts the white family that sold the house to the youngers, which okay. is the family and the house that uh, just before, which is the, the first act takes place just before the events of A Raisin in the Sun involving the selling of the house to the African-American family. And the second act of Claiborne Park takes place 50 years later. Hmm. In 2013, a play entitled Betherin's Place follows Bethrin after she leaves, to goes to Nigeria, and instead of becoming a doctor, becomes the dean of social sciences at a respected California university. Hmm. So when, I think it's all three plays are produced sort of together, it's called The Raisin Cycle. Oh. So The Raisin in the Sun, which you probably recognize because it's been a film the name and it does sound yeah. yeah so it's been on broadway twice with uh, a revival done in 2004 which starred sean combs p diddy himself p diddy himself dang yeah with um a couple of other people including andre McDonald, okay. who's like a huge broadway star That also became a TV movie in 2008 with the original, with that cast. Okay. And then it was revived again in 2014 with Denzel Washington playing the lead male role. Hmm. Uh, So that was before he did Fences, and then he did... Right. That would not become a movie. But uh, she was an interesting character, too, because actually, um, with the exception of Agatha Christie, all the rest of them are... um, So she... Hasbury, uh, after her divorce and with some of her writings as well as just rumors around at the time they uh, she was gay oh the same thing with Luce okay <laughs> yes, there's a lot of uh, I believe yeah when I was reading that one there were some rumors rumors that she was also gay or bisexual mm-hmm. so with the exception of Agatha Christie all the rest of my playwrights were probably
0: gay women there you go. I mean, it's a rich soil to plant the artistic seeds in. Yeah,
1: well when I mean you're dealing
0: with that, so I mean theater has
1: always been a safe space for yeah. gay and lesbians. Like if you especially if you even um God, the Tony Awards when Neil Patrick Harris was hosting them was so good. There was one year that his opening number was called Uh Broadway Just Isn't For Gays and Jews Anymore. I remember that, yeah.
0: That was so good.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but always been somewhere where people can flourish. Form, so. yeah. yeah. Um, 'cause Lisa Koran is. She she and her her partner is also a uh, award winning playwright. I just didn't get to her, but nice. Yeah, so these were pretty kick ass women who did a lot of really kick ass stuff
0: Yeah. Uh, I mean, there's absolutely no excuse that no women can't achieve all of this as well. <laughs> oh yeah. Like, and I mean, all these plays
1: are really good. I love the women. It doesn't hold up as much. Some of the content of it. Right. Some of it still does. Like, Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
0: <laughs> all right. Well, we hope you enjoyed uh, this tour through the positive world that is women in culture. There's one more week left in Women's History Month. So we're going to come back next week with yet another pro-women high positivity. Yes. Rate. Mine doesn't actually talk about women, though. Oh, I thought you were going to do the authors. I was, and then I got down a different rabbit hole. And, yeah. Ooh, I can't wait. We'll see how this works out then. <laughs> All right. Well, um, you flustered me now.
1: Sorry. <laughs> I know. Now I'm- so if you want to reach us, you can find us on our website at www.rabbitholespodcast.com. Yes. On there, you see our merch tab, where you can see some of our lovely merch. I'm going to hopefully get off my ass, and in the next couple of months do up some um, nobody-wants-to-be-paying-for-their-boobs-while-they're-in-a-nursing-home sort of... Nice. ...some stuff, because Elise said she wanted a t-shirt with that on it. I really want that as a (laughs) t-shirt. And I'm going to make that happen! Yes, Casual Friday is going to get a whole lot more fun at the office. (laughs) Um, You can also find our support tab, and you can see our Patreon, you can see our different levels. We'd love to get some support, as one of our goals is to Helpfully uh, offset some of the cost of our SoundCloud account. Yes. So if you like what you hear and you want to hear some of our really fun um, outtakes and the little tirades we go down, which are sometimes quite funny. Yes. Uh, well, a lot of the times they're quite funny. Um, you can sign up as a patron and then we'll give you access to our uh, secret sections and you can hear some of these
0: fun things that we say. Yes. Sometimes we go off on tangents that don't quite fit the flow of the show, so I cut them out and I make them into bonus clips, and I think we're up to like 20-some-odd bonus clips. Yeah, And some of them, like, if you noticed last week's episode, the closing music played, and then there was still like five or six minutes, it's because there was one that I just, I didn't want to lose. I wanted everyone to hear it, so I tacked it in there, and just to give you an idea of what you get when you get the bonus clips, they're there's some of the funny stuff that just doesn't quite fit the flow of the show. Because we'll
1: go, oh my god, and
0: then, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, So, if you want to reach us on social media, we have our Twitter set up at, uh, the account is at rabbit holes pod. You can also find us on Instagram at rabbit holes podcast and on Facebook, which is rabbit holes podcast page. And Andy curates those and always posts, always post interesting content that draws in Fun and new friends that we're excited to have. We have over two hundred followers on Instagram now. Yes, we've we're I Instagram we're, is beating my personal account, and it's happened very quickly. So I feel well. It doesn't have to do hard to beat. I think I only have like five people following. Yeah, me but on I've been on Instagram account. for several years, and I hit two hundred, and I was like, "Ooh, two hundred people!" and two hundred and fifteen followers. There you go. <laughs> so join us on social media. It's always a lot of fun. And, oh, take a minute to head over to iTunes, Stitcher, uh, uh, Spotify, which we're now on. Leave us a good rating or review and be sure to recommend us to friends and family and strangers on the street. Get our help, get our name out there. And there's only
1: one thing left to say. If you don't know where you're going, any road will take you there.
0: Bye, guys. Bye.